Welcome back to another episode of Vintage McCoy. I am not Pastor Rob McCoy. I'm Kelly, his daughter. He's not with us tonight. He won't be with us tomorrow night, but he will be back with us on Wednesday evening. In his place, we have our very own Seth Gruber from Unaborted. He is a firecracker for the pro-life industry. Um, over the past weekend, Mother's Day weekend, Seth and his wife, Olivia, took a trip to Calvary Chapel, Chattanooga. Why? Because <laughs> Chattanooga has not had an abortion clinic since 1993, and Planned Parenthood is hitting them hard. They've, uh, they're trying to infiltrate the culture of Chattanooga with a community organizer and a sex educator. And we all know, we all know that nobody hates, dehumanizes, and commodifies mothers more than Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. They try, I mean, sexual education is their sales funnel to sexualize minors and eventually sell them abortions. So Seth and his wife went to rally the troops and fire them up to stand, resist the culture of death, and act to influence the city and culture and the country. We need to get back to the basics. So we encourage you to stick around tonight and tomorrow night for a two-part series of this recording from Chattanooga with Seth Gruber. Pastor Rob viewed it. He loved it. I viewed it. It was amazing. Every moment of it, nuggets of wisdom and truth, everything that you need to place into your arsenal for the current culture that we live in. We need to have these tools ready for us if we're going to stand up for Christ and make a difference in our community and keep this country, this ground that God's given us. So stick around, tune in, watch it. Hey guys, Seth Gruber here, guest hosting for Vintage McCoy this week and Pastor Rob. Hey, we wanted to share a really exciting episode with you. I'm just about to fly back to LAX from Chattanooga because Planned Parenthood is knocking on the door of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga is the largest city in the country without a Planned Parenthood. And a group of Christians drove Planned Parenthood out of their city in 1993. So they haven't had a Planned Parenthood there for almost 30 years. Well, Planned Parenthood's coming and knocking on their door because they're very frustrated that there are um, potential prospects for abortion, pre-born children and their mothers in Chattanooga. And so Pastor Frank Ramsour of Calvary Chapel Chattanooga hit me up and said, we got to rally the troops. Well, the only Sunday I could get out there as soon as possible was this Mother's Day weekend. So I preached the most heavy Mother's Day message you have ever heard before. But it was powerful because mothers are God's idea, aren't they? <laughs> Motherhood begins at conception. We love mothers because we love families and family is God's idea and children deserve a mother and a father. But the greatest assault on mothers today is being wielded by Planned Parenthood and the culture of death who hate that there's an area in the country where mothers don't have easy access to reproductive health care services to pay a physician to kill their own child. And so Pastor Frank and I rallied the troops. I preached two messages on Saturday too, on Sunday on Mother's Day. And, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood loves mothers too, but for a very different reason, because they see dollar signs on her belly and dollar signs in her womb for the children they want to kill and whose body parts they want to sell. And so I want you guys to check out this message. It's a new message called See, Judge, Act. We have to see what's happening in this country, judge what the realities mean in the light of our faith, and then we have a responsibility and a duty to act, to resist the culture of death and stand in the gap on behalf of our pre-born neighbors. And so tune into this episode from Calvary Chapel Chattanooga with our good friend, Pastor Frank Ramsor, as we fire people up, poured kerosene on the fire of their souls to stand up, engage, and prevent Planned Parenthood and their genocidal agenda from targeting families, minors, and pre-born children in Chattanooga. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. We'll see you soon. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Together, we will make America Great again. Okay. I have never been more hopeful about America. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. But because of the Watergate matter, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Yes, indeed we are. 
the defenders of freedom. With the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Those who forget the past are destined to repeat. And now, your host, Pastor Rob McCoy. Hi. Good morning. I assume that laugh meant that I am forgiven from the state I traveled from, so thank you guys. It's very gracious of you. Uh, I do apologize for my state. Um, where Governor Mussolini doesn't even require uh, or allow singing in churches. Did you know we banned singing? Um, so the left doesn't like the liturgy of Christians. Did you know that? Because in participating in the liturgy that brings us before the King of Kings who entered human history in a womb that he once knit together, then we might start acting and standing in the culture of death with a big sign that says, Stop! And it's the Christians who should be on the front line doing that, who serve a prenatal God, the greatest former fetus to have ever existed. Now listen, the reason why we're here, the reason why your pastors and leadership decided to give me this time, very risky, on Mother's Day is because we love mothers. And you're a mother when you have a child in your womb. Motherhood does not begin at birth. Motherhood begins at conception. And that's not a religious perspective, you know, so if you're here and you're here because your family asked you to come to see the precious little baby get dedicated and you're not a believer, listen, we want you to meet the king of kings who was a former fetus. But we're not saying this because it's a religious perspective. It's a scientific truth that human life begins at the moment of conception. So you are a mother when you were pregnant with a preborn human being. And so that's why we're talking about the greatest assault on motherhood and the children's they bear today because it is Mother's Day and we love mothers. But you know who else loves mothers? Planned Parenthood. But for a whole other set of reasons. Because they see dollar signs. And they've assigned dollar signs to the limbs of the children they carry. Because after accepting the money for the killing of that child, they then sell those parts for extra cash. And you're going to learn a little bit about that this morning. So that's why we're talking about this. So if this is uncomfortable, it's because we live in a broken world. And we carry the light of the eternal Christ, the King of Kings, who entered human history. He chose to enter our time and space in a womb. So if that doesn't tell you about what God thinks about life in the womb, I don't know what will. You know, Martin Luther once talked about the courage of pastors and the courage of leaders. And he developed what I call the Martin Luther test. And I think it's a test that Frank and the leadership here have passed with flying colors. But I I wanna tell you what the Martin Luther test is. He once said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, in other words, if I'm a brilliant theologian and pastor and I can wax and wane theological and I'm super awesome, if I profess all of those truths, except precisely that point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on every battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. And for the last 15 months, we've had a lot of flinching from American pulpits and pastors in this country who folded like a cheap suit when tyrants told them to disobey Hebrews, which says, don't forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And Pastor Frank and your leadership here passed that test with flying colors. So amen. And it's about time that shepherds start acting like shepherds when wolves attack the the flock and stand in the gap on behalf of little sheep and who is more small and vulnerable than pre-born human beings. By the way, Pastor Frank asked me to say that, so. (laughs) No, 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 he didn't, but I wanted to say that anyway, so. You know, we need to learn from our spiritual forefathers. We have what's sort of called chronological snobbery, to quote C.S. Lewis. We stand in 2021, we think we're so much better than other um, cultures and Countries, right? We would never accept the Holocaust or a genocide in our country. 
We think we're so much better, but we allow the same things. We look down with shame and disgust on those who allowed the Holocaust and allowed slavery. While we allow our own Holocaust, we allow our own lynchings. They're called womb lynchings. And they happen at the tune of a million a year. But men have stood before. And the 1940s was an example of some phenomenal men who stood in Germany against the culture of death. By the way, do you know the names of any of the men who didn't stand and who were preaching Nazi propaganda with the veneer of Christianity within German churches? No, we've forgotten all of their names, and we should, because they're not worth remembering. The names that rise to the surface are names like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Niemöller, Eberhard Bethke. And in 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now, when abortion and the scourge of the, on this country is gone, it will be names like Frank, Jack Hibbs, Rob McCoy, and many, many, many others who are standing against the culture of death. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was this man? Well, he was a man who disobeyed the governing authorities. He disobeyed Romans. He tried to murder the governing authorities. Did you know this? Dietrich tried to murder Hitler. And he founded what was called the Confessing Church. Why did they call themselves the Confessing Church? Well, the insinuation in calling themselves that, it was a little bit prideful, it was a little bit self-congratulatory. They were saying, we're confessing the real Christ because we're standing against the Nazis who are murdering image bearers of God. And you German churches, if you can't even preach against that and stand against the slaughter of God's image bearers, the 13 million total killed in the Holocaust, 6 million of them were Jews. If you can't stand against that, and you're apathetic to that, or worse yet, you, you preach Nazi bigotry with the veneer of Christianity, you might not be confessing the real Christ. I mean, why else call yourself the confessing church? It, it was done in order to create a line of demarcation to say those of us here are confessing real Jesus, what Bonhoeffer called costly grace. And those of you on this side have cheap grace. Cheap grace is essentially grace without Jesus Christ. It's a Christ that you make in your own image. Well, here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friend by the name of Eberhard Bethke had to say. These are her, his words to us today. The reason why they are is because he was articulating what political resistance against the culture of death looked like within the walls of the church. That might be helpful for our time today. Here's what he said. This is like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friends. I mean, these guys were pastors together. Here's what he said. Bonhoeffer introduced us in the Confessing Church in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. Oh, no, he's going to talk about politics. Yes, because politics is the art of the possible where we're stewards of what God has given us. He says the levels of confession, and by confession he means proclamation, right, to declare. He says the levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated this increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer. We now realize that mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers. Even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted, and even though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday, during the whole time, the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. And then he asks this question, why should it? Why should the Nazis prohibit the preaching that we were preaching? Maybe because the preaching wasn't a preaching that called you off the bench and onto the battlefield to defend image bearers of God who were being genocided. Maybe because what you were preaching was what Bonhoeffer called a cheap grace. A Jesus you've made in your own image. That type of preaching doesn't pose any type of ideological, philosophical, or religious opposition to the Nazis. So they're like, awesome, keep preaching that cheap grace. Keep preaching that liturgy, awesome. Keep your liturgy within the walls of the church. So the Nazis had no problem with that preaching. This was what the confessing church was waking up to. Maybe we need to wake up to that too. Here's what he finishes with. He says, we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. In short, the only way that the anti-Holocaust, pro-life position of German churches manifested itself was through words. 
Today, this looks like this. Oh, we're a super pro-life church. We preach um, about it once a year, and we make a one-time donation to the Pregnancy Resource Center. But we have three abortion clinics in our city, and you know, we don't stand outside of there because we don't want to be perceived as political hacks. And so we're a super pro-life church. Oh, so your confession, your resistance, rather, to the culture of death only evidences itself through words. And Scripture says, faith leads to works. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, neither does a bad tree bear good fruit. Hmm. For too long, the American church has only proven its resistance to the culture of death, which slaughters babies at the tune of a million a year, by saying, I'm pro-life, and the culture of death goes, that's it? Epic. Exactly what we want. Cheap grace Christians. Now, maybe you're saying, Seth, listen, I'm pro-life, but fighting abortion isn't my calling. I love that it's your calling, Seth, but my calling is, is to serve at soup kitchens, and each person's entitled to their own calling. Listen, I'm not here to say other issues don't matter, that other social issues or justice issues don't matter. They all matter. But not all issues carry the same moral weight. Slavery was not the only issue of its day in 1850s America, was it? The Holocaust was not the only issue of its day in 1940s Germany, was it? There were still poor people. There were women who were being beat up by their husbands. There were children who were being abused. There were lots of other issues going on. But don't we all look back at that time and say, well, th- that was the dominant issue of its day. Abortion is the dominant issue of our day, you guys, because abortion is not just one issue among many. The right to life is not just one right among many. It is the prerequisite right, without which no other rights make any sense or have any meaning. And this is why our founder said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That means obvious. Duh. That we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are the right to life. Oh, look, they put life first. Ronald Reagan recognized this in his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. Yes, because abortion represented what we really believed. It was a litmus test of this republic because it strikes at the very heart of who we are as a people and a republic. And Reagan was pro-choice. He actually has unborn blood on his hands because of his policies in California, and he had a conversion. Here's what he said in his book. Abraham Lincoln recognized that we cannot survive as a free land as long as some men could decide that others are not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Likewise, we cannot survive as a free country today when some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. So there is no cause more important than affirming the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. In other words, if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. The right to liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness don't mean much. In fact, they mean nothing at all if you could be murdered. Confession, words, and resistance, putting your beliefs into action. So to move from mere confession to resistance, we must do three things. We must see the reality of what is happening to God's preborn image bearers. Secondly, we must judge what the reality of abortion and the abortion industry means in the light of God's truth, in the light of our faith. And lastly, once we see what's happening, and you know why it's important, you have a duty and responsibility to act. But this requires abandoning our all-too-popular, comfortable Christianity and embracing a comprehensive Christianity that gets off the bench, gets your boots on the battlefield, to fight on behalf of those who cannot, to speak on behalf of those who cannot. Proverbs 31.8, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The preborn, literally, cannot speak for themselves. But we also cannot speak for ourselves. Apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, and his offer of free salvation, we are also those who cannot speak for ourselves. Who can stand before God on the day of judgment and say, Jesus, perfect record over here, baby. Oh yeah, open up the gates of glory. This is why scripture says that we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. What's an advocate? Someone who speaks up for someone else. Pro-life resistance to the culture of death is simply the correct response of the heart to the gospel. Love as I have loved you. So if Christ spoke up for us when we were utterly incapable of doing so, how can we not speak up for the pre-born children in our midst who are equally unable to speak up for themselves? You see, the gospel is at the very heart of pro-life resistance to the culture of death. So ascend with me, if you will, to the parapets of America, and let's see what we can see, shall we? Let's get an overview of the moral landscape of this country. 
to know what we're fighting against. 48 years ago, the Supreme Court decided that a new class of human beings were not persons, repeating the same bigotry that they did on slavery. When they ripped the term human from person apart and said it doesn't matter that the unborn is a human, they're not a person, therefore they can be aborted through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Abortion is legal through all nine months. If you think I'm wrong, go to the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch, and you can view the percentages of abortions that happen in America in the third trimester. If they aren't happening in the late trimester, why is Guttmacher reporting the percentages that do happen? But then people say, it's such a small percentage, Seth. Not very many third trimester abortions happen. Correct, it's like one and a half percent. But when you kill a million babies a year, small percentages represent very large numbers. 63 million little children, little human beings have been killed in the last 48 years. It's probably a conservative estimate. At the request of their mothers and fathers and at the hands of physicians. Because of our inverted upside-down politics, our country now extends greater protections to animals than to human beings. This is why if you disturb the egg of a bald eagle, you will be fined a quarter of a million dollars and you will be sentenced up to two years in federal prison. But if you kill a baby at any point in the nine months of their prenatal development, you will be celebrated as a great defender of women's equality and rights. At the end of 2020, the state of Colorado voted on two different bills. One was, are we going to ban abortions after 22 weeks in the state of Colorado? You want to know the earliest baby to have been born and survived? 21 weeks and zero days. What's full gestation? 40 weeks. We've almost cut it in half. That baby went home perfectly healthy and flawlessly fine during the summer of COVID. It was born late 2019. So Colorado residents had this question before them. Will we ban abortions after 22 weeks in the state of Colorado? They overwhelmingly said, no, we will not ban birthday abortions. During the same voting cycle, they had the question, will we protect the gray wolf? And will we introduce more wolves into Colorado? And they voted overwhelmingly to protect the gray wolf, fulfilling G.K. Chesterton's prophetic line when he said, wherever there is animal worship, there will be human sacrifice. Former abortionist Bernard Nathanson who helped legalize abortion in the 70s, was performing them in a state that it was legal, New York, before it was legal at the federal level, presided over 75,000 abortions, performed over 5,000 himself, including an abortion on his own preborn daughter, later had a conversion to Christ in the pro-life movement. And he said, fewer women would have abortions if wombs had windows. But you see, Planned Parenthood keeps that window shut at every turn to ensure that nobody sees the very real humanity of the child. This is why if you request an ultrasound from Planned Parenthood as a pregnant woman, they will not let you schedule your ultrasound unless you already have your abortion scheduled. I'm not kidding. So in other words, you can't see your baby unless you already have an appointment to kill your baby. Well, let me take you to that window now. Let's open that window together because we have to see what's going on before we know how to respond. Within the first four weeks, the baby's eyes, face, mouth, jaw, throat, and heart will begin to form, and their heart will begin beating by day 21, three weeks. Most women don't know they're pregnant yet, so every abortion kills a human being with a heart that has already began beating. Today, you can kill that baby anywhere in the country. By six to eight weeks, the baby has ears, the beginning of his brain, spinal cord, nervous system, digestive tract, sensory organs, and bone. And in all 50 states, you can kill her. By 16 weeks, the baby has fingers, toes, eyelids, eyebrows, eyelashes, fingernails, hair, teeth, bones, a functioning nervous system, and fully developed genitals. Her heart is pumping roughly 25 quarts of blood every day. She can suck her thumb and yawn. In every state, you can kill her. By 19 weeks, you can feel your baby kicking and moving. And she has what's called all of the thalamic circuitry in place to experience pain to the same degree as you and I. We know the baby responds to some type of stimuli by seven or eight weeks old. Did you know this? But can experience pain to the same degree as you and I by 19 weeks. So when you dismember that child, it is as painful to them as if I tore your limbs off. 
And when pro-lifers try to pass legislation to require abortionists to give the child painkillers before they're aborted, the abortion industry always files out a lawsuit to say, no, we don't want babies to have painkillers before they're dismembered. This is the culture of death. By 21 weeks, your baby can survive outside the womb in a neonatal unit with the help of heroic doctors. In 33 states, it's absolutely easy to kill her. In the remaining 17 states, it's only slightly more difficult to kill her because the Supreme Court said that third trimester abortions can be allowed in all states if failure to get that late-term abortion endangers the mother's health. And did the courts define the word health? No. They later had to clarify what they meant by the word health because they left it so open-ended, and they basically said it could, it could pertain to family health, emotional health, psychological health. So basically, whatever the woman wants it to be in order to get a late-term abortion. And guess which physician has to determine whether the mother's definition of health is an appropriate one to give her that late-term abortion? The abortionist who has a financial incentive to accept any definition of health because he receives blood money in return for the murdered child and the most expensive abortions are the ones happening at later terms. This puts us in the company of only seven countries in the world, brothers and sisters, that allows abortion after 20 weeks. Countries like China and North Korea. Well, you have seen with your ears, but I also want to give you the opportunity this morning to see with your eyes. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, we're not going to expose exactly what an abortion does to a child this morning. However, we will have a link on the website so you can view what these children look like after they're killed. And for those who say, that's too graphic, Seth, why would you show us that? My simple question is, why have you never complained about the use of graphic imagery against every social injustice in all of human history, like the Holocaust and slavery, because you believed it was important for the collective culture to view that which they were tolerating? Why won't you support the same thing on abortion? That's what I would ask you. But we're not going to show that this morning, but we are going to show you babies at six, seven, and eight weeks old. The first two months, 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester the first three months. There's the greatest public support for abortion amongst Americans in the first trimester. We have this, every time we poll the American public, it's like less people support abortion as the baby gets older. It's very strange. I call this ageism, by the way. Oh, so now that the baby's older, you, you don't want to kill it as much? Oh yeah, because it looks a little bit more like you, so you're a little bit more uncomfortable with killing it, huh? 13% of the American public supports abortions in the third trimester. The vast majority of Americans support abortion in the first trimester, but it's still a human being. So we're going to open that window to the womb for you right now to show you what God sees, as he is quite literally, according to scripture, knitting human beings together in their mother's womb. This is what you look like at six, seven, and eight weeks old, and guess what? It's what your Savior looked like in Mary's womb at six, seven, and eight weeks old. Let's open the window to the womb. A touch to the mouth area causes the embryo to reflexively withdraw its head. The external ear is beginning to take shape. By six weeks, blood cell formation is underway in the liver, where lymphocytes are now present. This type of white blood cell is a key part of the developing immune system. The diaphragm, the primary muscle used in breathing, is largely formed by six weeks. portion of the intestine now protrudes temporarily into the umbilical cord. This normal process, called physiologic herniation, makes room for other developing organs in the abdomen. At six weeks, the hand plates develop a subtle flattening. Brain waves have been recorded as early as six weeks and two days. Nipples appear along the sides of the trunk shortly before reaching their final location on the front of the chest. By six and a half weeks, the elbows are distinct. The fingers are beginning to separate and hand movement can be seen. 
Bone formation, called ossification, begins within the clavicle or collarbone and the bones of the upper and lower jaw. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together in the dark of the earth, every day ordained for me before one of them came to be. That's what your savior, Christian, looked like in the womb in Mary's body in six, seven, and eight weeks old. 900,000 of those children are killed every year in this country. The other 100,000 happening in the second and third trimester. This type of footage is called embryoscopy. It's not ultrasonography. We now can insert a small camera up the birth canal, and because the amniotic sac is clear, you can actually see the child. By the way, did you see that baby's heart beating through their translucent skin? Now, if you hadn't seen the size reference, you probably would have thought that that child was like a foot long, showing you how detailed and beautiful God's handiwork is at the very beginning. This is the window that Planned Parenthood never opens for women. Now listen, I understand when we show you this imagery, for many of you, this is not just an ideological or philosophical discussion. We're not just talking about ideas. For many of you, we're talking about your story. For many of you, you chose to pay someone to remove that child through an abortion. For some of you, you might have paid for, pressured, or manipulated your girlfriend or wife into that procedure. I don't know your story this morning, but I just want to tell you that I'm not here to shame and condemn you this morning because I'm a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that the prenatal God, the second member of the Trinity, stepped down into time and space that he created in a womb that he created to dwell and develop in that womb dies for mankind's sins, predicts and pulls off his own resurrection so that we can be offered eternal life and glory for those of us who repent. So listen, I believe that Jesus would tell you if he were preaching this sermon that he's just as eager to forgive your sin of abortion as any other sin that anyone could ever commit. Abortion's not a blacklist sin. Okay, abortion is not an unforgivable sin. And if you want evidence of this, if you've been living under shame for years, have told almost no one about what's happened, I just point you to the story of King David, yeah? God called him like a, a man after his own heart, right? Did you know he was also a peeping Tom? <laughs> King David hanging out on his roof. While his army was fighting a battle he should have been leading. Great leader, right? Oh, look, Bathsheba's taking a shower. Wow, David. Well, decides enjoying her visually is just not stimulating enough, so he sleeps with her, impregnates her, and murders her husband. Man after God's own heart? If that doesn't provide hope to you, I don't know what will. But you see, there was more to David's story. The prophet Nathan confronts David regarding his heinous sin. And David kind of justifies it initially, like we all have a tendency to do. And then he repents. He hits his knees. He cries out for the grace and mercy of God. And God renews and forgives David, uses him mightily, calls him a man after God's own heart. And he's in the hall of faith. But maybe like you and like King David, maybe you arranged the death of an innocent human being in order to hide and cover up your sexual sin. But for whatever reason, you chose an abortion. The end result was the same. It was an image bearer of God who was killed, whose life was snuffed out. But listen, if there was grace for King David, brothers and sisters, there is overwhelming grace for you. David loses his son, his little baby, okay? God actually strikes the child dead. The baby that he created with Bathsheba, an eternal soul who had never existed before and would never exist again. And King David says, my son will not return to me but I will go to him. I will see him in glory. 
So if this is part of your story, I want to tell you that not only is Jesus faithful and just and loving to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and use you mightily and call you a man or woman after God's own heart, but if you accept that gospel of grace, like King David, you're going to see your son or daughter in heaven again one day, and they are seated on the lap of the King of Kings, waiting to welcome you into eternal glory. But that hope is only available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you will not find a salve for your soul or a solution for your sin anywhere else but the womb of Mary where the prenatal God stepped into time and history. So hear that and receive that and know that this is part of your story. The pastors here, myself, and the Choices Pregnancy Resource Center that has post-abortion Bible studies available to you would love to begin a journey of healing with you. We would love to love and welcome you because... We believe that like King David, God wants to take your ashes and make something beautiful out of it and use you to help where you used to hurt because you've been there. And so you can tell the culture, don't do this. Hear that and receive that, please. Know that we are not here to shame and preach hellfire and damnation on you, but rather salvation found in the womb of Mary. But folks, we're killing babies. And this president has become the most pro-abortion president in American history, and it is not close. In fact, Joe Biden and his administration makes Barack Obama look like a pro-choice moderate. And Obama was the most pro-abortion president in American history until his VP stepped into the White House. In the first hundred days, this administration has been a greater advocate of the culture of death than any in American history. They have returned to using your tax dollars to fund abortions overseas. Largely in majority black countries, which I just find so interesting because I've been told the Democratic Party is the party of anti-racism, meaning they would want more black people. It's very strange. I don't know. Anyways, they've increased the tax funding of Planned Parenthood by the millions, restoring the 60 million that President Trump defunded. They are using your tax dollars now to restart um, fetal tissue research. That's where you purchase the limbs of children after they've been aborted, and then you use them to tinker around and develop vaccines. Judicial Watch just exposed the FDA in a 600-page report for purchasing aborted babies between 20 and 24 weeks old, so they could have survived outside the womb in a neonatal unit, after they'd been aborted from advanced bioscience resources in Northern California, and requesting them from that lab with the words, quote, fresh and on ice. Why? Well, to create humanized mice to test biologic drugs and test vaccines. So they scalp children, they take their flesh, and they insert it subcutaneously on mice to grow human hair to test vaccines so we can extend our own lives. You you will fact check me on all this. Within the last month, scientists have pushed to drop the 14-day limit on growing human beings artificially outside the womb in petri dishes in order to tinker around with gene editing because we want to perfect ourselves and live forever. Those same scientists, some of them, are also announcing that they're creating human monkey hybrids Developing them, killing them, harvesting their organs so that those of us who weren't aborted can just live a little bit longer. The Biden administration through the FDA within the last four to six weeks just removed the FDA's 20-year-long safety regulations on the sale of the abortion pill. It's a, de- it's a detailed conversation. Essentially, we had regulations saying if you want the abortion pill, you have to show up for an in-person evaluation to make sure that you didn't have an ectopic pregnancy when the baby implants in the fallopian tube, because then the abortion pill will kill the mother. And secondly, to make sure that the baby is as old as you think it is, because the abortion pill is only taken through 10 weeks. And so if you take it past that stage, it leads to incomplete abortions, and you have floating dead baby parts in mother's uterus, making her susceptible to sepsis, infection, and death. Those are why the safety regulations were in place on the sale of the abortion pill. Sounds pretty like common sense, right? Like a pro-choice should support that. Well, the FDA has removed that so that they can participate in what we call mail-order murder or telemedicine abortions. So this means the abortion pill now, you guys, in all 50 states, thanks to the FDA and this administration, can snail mail abortion pills to women's mailboxes and your daughter's college mail slots. So how do we advocate for that child? There's not a sidewalk we can stand outside of and plead with the mother. The The poison is showing up in the mailbox. Thanks to... Joe Biden, who woke evangelicals told us was the real pro-lifer. They're praying they can pass the Equality Act, which would force pro-life OBGYNs and nurses to perform abortions upon threat of career termination. Because denying a woman an abortion, they are, they are now defining as pregnancy discrimination. It's all in the Equality Act. You'll read it for yourself. 
It would also force you and Americans in every state to fund abortions through a whole cornucopia of different programs, and it would basically turn over every pro-life law in every state because it would deem it unconstitutional. And here locally, Planned Parenthood is knocking on your door wanting to open up a killing center in order to get closer access to the children, pre-born children and pregnant women of Chattanooga. So that's what we need to see. That's what you need to get woke to. So if our confession is going to stop being merely linguistic, saying we're pro-life, and we move to resistance, to resist the culture of death, to love our neighbors, sometimes that requires getting uncomfortable. So in order to judge with truth what is happening, how to make sense of all this madness I just told you within a Christian worldview, we have to do three things. We have to judge with truth, and that requires knowing what the other side believes, why they're so devoted to abortion, and how they implement their plan for parenthood, to use that organization's euphemism. If we're going to judge with a Christian worldview and make sense of these realities, we must do these three things. What they believe, why they love abortion, and how they implement their plan. But let's start with why. Let's begin with why, as it's popular to say. Have you ever wondered why the left in the abortion industry cares so much about abortion? Like, why they love it so much? Have you seen them work themselves up into frenzies every time pro-life politicians try to pass laws to protect the pre-born? President Trump, a man far from perfect, was the most pro-life president in American history, and boy, did they hate that about him. Every time a Supreme Court vacancy opened up, didn't you watch the left lose their ever-loving minds? And what, what was the reason they said for why this could be the end of America if a conservative gets on the Supreme Court? It was always about abortion. That was the number one thing they'd say when a Supreme Court vacancy opened up, was that now those pro-lifers might overturn abortion. If that doesn't tell you how much they care about abortion, I don't know what will. So we need to discuss why this is. Why does the left care so much about abortion? Because listen, for the secular progressive movement, abortion is not just a woman's issue. It's not just one issue among many. For the secular progressive movement, brothers and sisters, abortion is a sacrament. Now, I know that sounds strange. I'm using religious language, and you're thinking, but they're a pagan worldview. I mean, it's a pagan movement. How could that be a sacrament? I think it's important for you to understand this because there are spiritual principalities, and you need to understand that spiritual battle if we as the sons and daughters of God are going to be equipped to engage on that battlefield. The secular progressive, like everyone else who turns from God, is not listening to God, right? That should be pretty self-evident. If you're not a son or daughter of the king and your heart's not been regenerated, then you're not listening to God, which means you're susceptible to the lies of the enemy, Satan, devil, prince of demons, lord of flies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. There are spiritual principalities. So if you're not in the kingdom of God, then you will be being lied to and your soul will be being preyed upon by demons. So what lie are they hearing? When they participate in the liturgy of abortion and the sacrament of abortion, what lie are they hearing? The lie from Genesis 3, the lie from the garden, the first lie out of the serpent's mouth that's been being said to the culture for thousands of years. And what was it? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. That's a fascinating lie. I want to be like a god. I want to live forever. This is the lie that the left has adopted and what drives their liturgy on abortion. Because listen, if we're a god, then we get to decide who lives and who dies, right? And so we can kill babies or create babies to explicitly kill them, tinker around with experiments in order to extend our own lives to pursue that which every God is entitled to, eternal life. You know the Bible says eternity is written on the heart of man, right? Meaning that our souls resonate with the truth of God because we come from God, we've been made by God, and so our souls can't help but acknowledge truth when we see and hear it. That's what it means to say eternity is written on the heart of man. So because eternity is written on the heart of man, the left craves the same thing we crave, which is to defeat death. So the secular progressive movement believes the last enemy to be defeated is death. But they took that from the Christian worldview, folks. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be defeated is death. So what they don't realize, brothers and sisters, is that it already has been. The prenatal God who entered time and history in a womb 
predicts and pulls off his own resurrection, rises again and says, I've defeated death so you can too. So secular progressivism is not a rival politics. It's not an alternative politics. It is a rival religion whose greatest sacrament is abortion. Here's why. Abortion says, you must die, baby, so I can live. Christ says, I must die so you can live. I've died and I raised from death so you can too. Death has already been defeated. The God-man who entered history in a womb takes the punishment for our sin. This is why abortion is the greatest sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism. Because rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, the culture of death demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. Because we want to defeat death. We want to pursue what every god's entitled to and the serpent's telling me that I shall be his gods. So I want to live forever. We do this through embryonic stem cell research, fetal tissue research, prenatal gene editing, and human hybrid organ harvesting. The baby simply becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. So if your organs are dying, the baby's got some more. Take it from them. We kill babies to obtain their parts to perform experiments so we can produce vaccines and drugs to extend our own lives. We kill babies to steal their stem cells with the hope of using it to cure diseases and extend our own lives. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing new. Pagan cultures and societies have always participated in human sacrifice. Babies, children, and adults. To pagan deities who they believed would give them a blessing in return for the sacrifice of a human. You know this? Cultures have always sacrificed humans to the war gods, the sex gods, the crop gods, the weather gods, believing they'd receive a blessing in return to protect or extend their own lives. Today, we sacrifice babies to the pagan idols of money, selfishness, education, and career well-being. But it's still demon worship. Because Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrificed your children to. Hear me, wake up. Satan doesn't care what name you call him. He was happy to go by the name of Moloch in the Old Testament. And today, he's fine if the culture of death calls him the name self. Money, education, family, career well-being, human flourishing, pursuit of happiness. He's happy to go by that name as long as you continue to shove children down his throat. For he is a lion who prowls around looking for those to devour. And Satan has always and forever been behind the killing of babies. Did you know this? He's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth to Christ so he can devour and eat him. He's behind the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt. As long as we continue to shove children down his throat, he will say yes and amen. He is the god of the religion of secular progressivism. And Peter Kreft a Catholic philosopher put it better than I ever could when he said abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body. But with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So Christ says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of the King of Kings. The culture of death says the same words. This is my body. And I will do whatever I want with what's inside of my body. Why? Because I shall be as gods. And I get to decide who lives and who dies. If you're going to resist the culture of death, you have to know why the left cares so much about abortion. This lie that we received from woke evangelical pastors leading up to the election, like Tim Keller, that said God doesn't care about your vote. Let me quote him verbatim. You have liberty of conscience to vote however you want. These lies from woke pastors who don't understand that they're not fighting an alternative politics. They're fighting a rival religion. So when pastors say, I don't talk about politics, I say, can you preach against false religion? Because that's exactly what we're facing, brothers and sisters. But what do they believe? You know why they care. What do they believe? What is the worldview and religious suppositions of the religion of secular progressivism? There's one belief, ready? There is one tenet and belief of secular progressivism that animates everything that they do. Everything they do trickles down from this one religious belief, and it's called body self-dualism or Gnostic dualism. 
Sounds, I know, sort of strange, but it's body-self dualism. So there's a duality between the body and the self. Does that make sense? Body-self dualism. By the way, did you know that Gnostic dualism has been declared a heresy by the church? Oh, it's almost like it's a spiritual battle. Like it's an alternative religion. Yes. Here's what body-self dualism says. And if you grasp it, your eyes will be opened up to the entire religion of the left. You'll see how it affects everything they do. Ready? They say that there's a difference between the human body and you, the person. So in other words, not all humans are persons. Oh, wait, but didn't that what Nazis said about Jews and racists said about blacks, that even though they were humans, they weren't persons, and so they didn't get personhood rights? Yes, history repeats itself. But here's what they believe. They say that the real you is not your body. The real you is your thoughts, your aims, your desires, your motivations, your consciousness, your self-awareness, the relationships you have with others, your ability to interact with your environment. In short, the real you are your functions. How you function, not who you are. Because human beings begin at the moment of conception. So what happens, friends, when being human is not enough to ground your rights? Because what's the only thing we have in common? Look at one another. If you're sitting with a, you know, a girl you've been wanting to ask out, here's your chance. You know, look at one another. What do you have in common? Do we have gender in common? Age? Ethnicity? IQ? Athleticism? Artistic ability? Do we have any of these things in common? No. What's the one thing we have in common? We're human beings. We have a human nature. When did we get a human nature? Uh, when we became human. And when did we become human? The science says the moment of conception. The human nature is the only thing we have in common. So what happens when the left says, being human is not enough to have rights? Because the real you is not your body. That's what they believe. So they believe that your body is just a shell for the real you. The real you is your soul, your self-awareness, your cognitive abilities. So then, the left gets to determine which functional capacities and cognitive abilities you must currently possess to meet the litmus test of personhood. And this is what racists did to blacks. What was the argument of racists in the 1850s? There were two. Wrong skin color, not smart enough. They had the wrong skin color, and they weren't as smart as whites. They weren't as intellectually smart. That was it. So those are accidental properties, right? Because we don't all have the same IQ. In fact, if we held all of our palms up here today, would we all have the same shade of skin color? No, skin color comes in varying degrees, just like intellect comes in varying degrees. So what happens, friends, when you ground rights in things that come in varying degrees? it follows that rights, therefore, come in varying degrees. So whoever has a greater self-awareness has greater rights. Higher IQ has greater rights. Paler skin has greater rights. But if you're an unborn human being and you don't have these cognitive abilities yet, you're not a person. Hey guys, thanks for watching. For more information, head over to VintageMcCoy.com or follow us on Instagram at The Vintage Report. We'll see you there.